pick up. We're probably going to finish the book of Job tonight. Uh, so it's been a good time. We welcome all you that have joined us live wherever you're at in the country or around the globe that are watching us and those of you that will get this podcast sometime this week. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for all those that are here in the building and all those that are watching. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to grow in your word. We thank you for the forgiveness that you give us each day, Lord. The prophet said that it's because your mercies are new every day that none of us are consumed. So we're thankful, Lord. We ask you to watch over us, help us to do your will, help us to be more like you when we leave here today. Forgive us, Lord, of our transgressions. We pray, Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your will to be done. We know that you're lining all things up, Lord, to bring us to an expected end. And everything is going to work out just exactly the way you planned it. And we're thankful for your word that you've not left us in the dark about things. You've given us clear understanding. And may we grow in that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Say it with me. Some trust in chariots and horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord. We're going to pick up in uh, Job chapter 40. Probably going to finish this book tonight. Uh, Some good stuff in here to look at. Some things that are uh, remind us of who's in charge. So uh, uh, we will uh, get in here and see what God's got to say to us tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 40 says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Uh, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him. Now, God's taken over the conversation. The old guys, the young guy finally had his say. We see pride in all of them, even Job, um, the humanity. Job's in the dark. He's struggling with all that. He don't realize, can't figure out why he's having to go through this. His friends who know him, who had good intentions, but they also are looking at this and cannot figure out why Job's going, so they think there must be something wrong with Job. And, and quite frankly, we all have a pride in us, and we all are living in the flesh, so we have to, that has to be emptied out along the journey so that we, this, this is going to happen in your life. If you're going to be obedient to the Word and to the Holy Spirit, this is going to happen in your life. I'll write this on my little board. Uh, this is what John the Baptist said. Jesus must increase... And we must decrease. Now when they said that, when John said that, they came to him and what was happening, there was the transition going, right? The disciples, John had been ministering long before Jesus came on the scene or some time before Jesus came on the scene. John was his cousin. John, in the natural, John was born six months prior to Jesus. John had taken on disciples. He was baptizing folks. He was calling them to repentance. And he was getting, he said, make, make the uh, path straight, you know, the way for the Lord. And basically, <clears throat> I don't want you to misunderstand what's being said there. It wasn't like everybody clear a path so the Lord can get through. Basically, what was being said there is get everything out of the way of the Lord so he can get to you. Open that door to him because he's coming. And so John, they come to John. They said, hey, your guys are leaving and following Jesus. And that was meant to stir him up, right? To challenge him and get him all worked up. And that was his response. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. But there's a spiritual lesson, I think, for us here in this, that we've got to decrease along our journey 
and God will increase. Well, that's happening with all these guys. They're getting ready to learn a lot. God's correcting everybody. But also, I want to take you to this pisteo path. This is uh, what I call the pisteo path. That's the Greek word. That's a verb that undergirds all believing in faith in the New Testament, just like hasa and batak are the Hebrew words in the Old Testament, both verbs that undergird the believing and faith in the Old Testament. So this, this is the foundation uh, where we get the word pistis and all that, that, that uh, true faith is action, right? Faith without works is dead. So when, when stick man, he's come to church on a Wednesday here. When stick man gets born again, he gets into the path. Something I've called the pisteo path. He's on his journey to God. All right. He's walking this path. Jesus said the way is straight and narrow, right? So Jesus used a Greek word there. It's the word stenos. It's where we get the word stenosis. It's the narrowing, like narrowing of arteries or something. And that's where we get the word stenosis. So this way is not just narrow. It's narrowing. That's what he's trying to get across. Why? Because as we walk with the Lord, this needs to be what happens. He needs to increase and we need to decrease. So that way is to nose. It's narrowing in on us. It's stripping us of all of us, our flesh and our ways and, and, and growing us until Christ is formed in us, Paul said. So that we are walking in this path and getting more like Christ and less like us. What we really want to be able to say is what basically Paul said. I put this in my own words. Uh, the world's no good for me anymore and I'm no good for them. We're not compatible. We don't get along. I don't really offer them anything because I'm going this way and the world's going that way. So the design of our Christian walk is to uh, bring us, to con conform us into his image, which Paul teaches about. That we're in this journey, not perfected, but we're being perfected. And then that final part will come when he said in the, over in one of the epistles, when we see him, we shall be like him. So this work is on, you're on a journey of sanctification. Paul said we're sanctified by the washing of the water of the word. So the more that we wash ourselves with, uh, the more we become like Christ. So. That's the, that's the idea behind what's going on. So these guys are all getting a lesson in this. They're going to decrease as God begins to talk and realize that their thinking was not correct and their ideas. So God, after he says, uh, if you're going to contend and correct him, said, who, who, he who rebukes God, let him answer it. So he's thrown down a challenge, the Lord had. Then Job answered uh, the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job said, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> then the Lord answered, Can you, I don't think we, we have never, I want you to think about this for a moment. We've never encountered anybody in our lives that's totally pure. Now, Jesus was, people that got, but can you imagine like when these guys, when the Lord showed up in certain moments, even like with John, they fell as dead men. You, can you imagine stepping into the presence 
of somebody who's totally pure. There's nothing out of whack in them. And that's, these guys are getting re- they're experiencing that with God. Job's like, I don't have anything to say. Then the Lord answered the Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself. It's the second time he said this. Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. God's throwing a challenge out here. But he's kind of putting everybody in their place. Now, there's a lot of attributes about God. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's all-hearing. He's all-everything. He is full of compassion. He's got judgment. He's righteous. He's pure. He can't do any wrong. can't tell a lie. I mean, so many things we can say about God. But ultimately, what makes God God is he cannot be overthrown. He's the buck stops with God. He controls the weather. He made everything. We're all going to stand before him someday. We might as well reconcile that in our minds. That's how it's going to be. <clears throat> you may look at God and may look at his word and, and not like it, but that doesn't change the fact that he's creator and that he's in charge and the buck stops with him. Ultimately, what makes God God is because he's more powerful than any other force in the universe. He controls it. Now, there's a psalm that says, uh, the, the Lord reigns, let the people rejoice. If I could illustrate that, how the Hebrew suggests that is, the Lord reigns and you better be glad that it's him and not someone else. That's how the Hebrew would try to get that across to us. The Lord reigns. And think about that. The beauty that God reigns is because he's perfect. He can't do any wrong. He can't tell a lie. When you see the value of that, none of us qualify. Right? None of us qualify to be God. The the beauty is that God is all-powerful and he's all-everything good. There's no darkness in him. None. Not even a shadow of turning. He's perfect. And so he's illustrating his power here. He says, uh, look on everyone who's proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will confess to you that your right hand can save you. He said, Job, if you can do this. Now, as Christians, we start with the Bible. God is true first. And everything else is built around that. Sinners, the world, the secular world don't do that. They scoff at God. And I'm setting you up for what we're getting ready to hear next. Now God's going to tell us a few things about some creatures that he's created. And Ken Ham's way better at this than I am. I'm going to touch on a couple of things here with the animals, the couple we're getting ready to see. But Ken Ham's been arguing for years that the dinosaurs and all that were part of creation with Adam and Eve and God's going to verify that here he's going to talk about an animal with a tail like a cedar tree and we've got the evidence of these animals we man out there has just struggled with when they fit right but God's going to give us some information here and he's right right until some scientists or whoever 
historian until they die and raise from the dead on their own, then I'm going to stick with the information that I've gotten from the one who's risen from the dead. Amen. So let's look. Look now at Behemoth, which I made along with you. Do you see that? And, 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 and we've already found out when studying Job, they, they knew about the flood. They knew that God was the creator. We act like all these people were stupid because we got telescopes and cell phones now. But they got their information directly from God. Moses, all these guys, they're, getting, they're interacting with the one. They're interacting with the greatest scientist who is God. They're interacting with the one who made the bumblebee that shouldn't be able to fly. They're, act, they're, act, they're interacting with the one who told us through Moses that the rabbit chewed the cud, which science disputed for a long time and found out that the rabbit actually chewed the cud. So they're getting their information directly from the one who's in charge of everything, who made everything. So he said, I made him along with you, not before you. And as I've said before, let me take you back to this just to remind you of this, that the reason God uh, can say, show us some, the end from the beginning is because God rests, this circle represents eternity. And God sits the top of the circle so he can see all the way around the circle. This is my finite way of describing this to you. Down here somewhere, we'll call zero, God decided to form Adam, or, or everything we now create. We call him Adam, but Adam, and out here somewhere, we know that time's going to be no more. But God exists in this realm of eternity. So if you go back behind Adam, was God around? Sure, he was around, but you're going back into a time. I hate to, I, I, I struggle to even call it time, because... Back behind Adam, there were no revolutions, right? We, God put the, the, the lights, the moon and the sun, and now we have revolutions. I've got a watch that goes around, makes revolutions, because time was instituted for part of God's plan. But if you go back behind Adam, there is no time. So there's no way to date things back here because there's no revolution. And of course, when Mount St. Helens erupted in the 80s, I'm old enough to remember. Actually, I've got some ash from that volcano that somebody had given me back then. We, we know that rock layers formed within hours. One right on top. And that great canyon that was formed just within like a few days after all that, that, that we realized. And the last uh, two trips ago when we were at the Grand Canyon, when we were doing some filming out there, we had one of the tour guides. We stopped to listen to her, give her spiel. I just want to hear what she had to say. And she said to the tour guides, or to the, the people on the tour said, we now know that all this was underwater at one time. <clears throat> and I, I, said, I thought to myself and probably said it, uh, well, we're getting closer. You know, this place was underwater at one time. So you cannot, and then you go back here. The reason we don't age once we go into heaven, we're going back into eternity where there's no revolutions. There's not even going to be a sun because the Bible says Jesus will light up the place, right? No more night. So you're not having those. The time was instituted for us. So these guys are not dummies. They, they, and I, like I've argued before, Adam was probably smarter than any of us. 
But they're, they're getting their information from God, direct sources. And he says, he eats, he eats grass like an ox. See now, his strength in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. And we know there's evidence now of, of creatures with a long tail. You all have seen some of those dinosaurs and things that they uh, have found things. that. Uh, so what Christianity did for a long time was just deny that stuff, Right? Uh, because we couldn't make sense of it. <clears throat> Not everybody, but a lot of times Christianity would just deny that stuff. And then you got <clears throat> the world trying to fit it in, and, act, and then we watched their dating methods continue to show up flawed, and then the guy that they uh, thought was a human wound up being a pig's tooth, and they had that in our textbooks for years instead of a human tooth. Just a lot of stuff that went on, that, and people, instead of just coming out and saying, we, we've not got this figured out. They just keep covering it up. But somehow, when you go back, we, we realize now that God has made creatures, and some of them have become extinct over time. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, too, to tell you how that happens, where now we think things are like a myth, or the fact that they're no longer here and we can't place them where we want to place them. We just stick them back in millions of years ago, back into a time where there was no time. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're going back, if you believe God's word, back behind Adam, there was no time the way. God lives in eternity. It's a whole different dimension. It's hard for us to, and I, I'm limited. I, I admit that I'm limited, but I'm trying to give us some sense of this understanding that back behind Adam, and then we know there's going to be time no more. We're going to go into heaven into eternity. So you can't date those places, if I can call them that, eternity. So he says this guy, is, uh, he's got a tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like the beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him. And all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus tree in the covert reeds of the marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brooks around him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes out of his mouth, though uh, gushes into his mouth, though he takes it into his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. So this creature is so large um, that it's unaffected by even natural disasters. And so we have evidence that there were creatures like this. And then he's going to talk about Leviathan. And there's a two-edged sword uh, uh, here because he's given us a spiritual lesson. Satan is certainly referenced with Leviathan. But I want to give you some stuff that I, I've discovered about this. Leviathan, let me read about him, then let's talk about it. I want to talk to you about a, an animal that was extinct. Uh, that they began to call a myth, and now we've re come back around and know that it was alive, and uh, we have evidence that it was alive, not just tales of that. So that can happen. Uh, so he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or a snare in his tongue with a line which you lower? So uh, can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will, he, will you take him as a servant uh, forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Uh, he's given us a lot of information about this other creature, Leviathan. 
Will, you com will your companions make a banquet of him? <clears throat> will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? So he's given us idea that this guy's uh, likes the water, right? Uh, lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed in his sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. <clears throat> That's God talking about himself again. He says, you can't even mess with Leviathan. How can you deal with me? I made Leviathan. Everything under heaven. Again, over and over, we see from Genesis through Revelation, over and over how God takes credit for creating everything and being in charge. He keeps reasserting. That's the thing that the world's tried to tear down the most by going after Genesis 1 through 11 and other scriptures. So he says, You're not, you can't deal with Leviathan. Don't think you can deal with me. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Or who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. <clears throat> One is no near another that no air can come between them. One is so near the, uh, another, no air. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning light. Sparks of fire shoot out. Now at first you're thinking this could be an alligator or a crocodile or something like that. But then he's telling us this animal has the power to shoot fire out of its mouth and its nostrils. Sounds like a dragon. Most cultures have tales of dragons. <clears throat> the question is, in our finite mind, we just don't think there could be such a thing as a dragon. But we still can't figure out how a bumblebee can fly either. So <clears throat> God's telling us, he's given us the description of these himself. So what I want to tell you is, anybody ever heard of the dodo bird? The dodo bird was in the Indian Ocean. It went extinct in 16... I believe it was 1692, maybe, 16, something like that. Uh, it became extinct in 1662. Sailors would use, this bird was, couldn't fly, so it was easy prey, and they would use it to eat. But in 1662, it became extinct. And after that, because sailors talked about it mostly and had drawings of it, it became more a myth to people. But in more recent times, they've discovered that the dodo bird exists. So here's what you got. You got the same problem with this. This look, looks like a dragon here. That it's very possible God could have created a creature that could breathe fire out of his mouth. That's not uncommon for God to do things that we, don't, we can't fully understand. Uh, uh, so the dodo bird we know now existed. It's, it's not a myth. And it was never a myth, but sometimes things get lost and, and are hard to believe. Just like Arcturus, the star that's 25 times bigger than the sun. And that moves so swiftly through the atmosphere, through the universe. And God has got things out there that we can't really fully comprehend. Now, I'm not going to concretely tell you this is a dragon. 
But I kind of believe it was a dragon. Does anybody ever heard of the Brachinus beetle or the bombardier beetle? The bombardier beetle or what's called the Brachinus beetle is a small creature. His defense is the fact that he can blow out of his back end two chemicals. They have two different shoots. This Brachinus beetle, bombardier beetle, is created with two jets. And he blows two different chemicals out of those jets. When they come out of him or her, <clears throat> there's a lot we could do with that, I understand. But when these, when these chemicals come out of his back end, they create an explosion. And that explosion gets 100 degrees Celsius and over 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It gets bull It paralyzes and kills his enemies. And he survives. Could you imagine that? Blowing out that kind of temperature out of the back end of this little bitty beetle. We're not talking about a horse. We're not talking about a hippopotamus. We're talking about a bombardier or a brachinus beetle. God designed that beetle that way. I want to remind you, before you just write off a creature that can breathe fire out of his mouth, that your God can do anything. And all these cultures, over time, have stories about dragons, and they have dragon slayers. Now, I'm not here to be a scientist, but I'm here to tell you that God is describing an animal that sounds like a dragon. And, um, and, and one that sounds like a dinosaur. And we have evidence of these kind of creatures. What we've lost is we've got like the dodo bird. We've probably lost any real proof of some of these things. Although some of that keeps coming up. Uh, and so we call them myths. Just like with the dodo bird for a lot of years. Before we could actually come back and realize that that bird was actually uh, was here on earth. Uh, and now we know, because God said it, that these animals, creatures, were contemporaries with Job. So he, they're around. Whatever caused their extinction, how, whatever God did to maybe remove them, wherever they're at now or whatever, uh, God's probably done us all a favor. So he says, uh, from a boiling pot and burning bushes, rushes, his breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. <clears throat> strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings. They are beside themselves Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail. Nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. Now, I'll remind you something. Hold your spot there. Because <clears throat> your God and my God is supernatural. So he can do some stuff that we can't fathom in our natural mind. That blows our minds, right? He, he took a... Uh, a, a swarm of hornets and ran a whole nation out just with a swarm of hornets. 
we've been uh, trying to get him to send them to D.C., but he won't. He's not hurt. He's not. He's not hurt our prayer yet. All right, listen. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, maybe. Now, uh, look. I want to show you in Revelation chapter eleven. Let me read you a few verses out of Revelation chapter 11 about these two witnesses that are coming back. And I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and an angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court that is on the outside of the temple. Do not measure, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses. Now these two witnesses, they showing up, right? They show up in the Old Testament. They show up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is there in Matthew chapter 17. And here they are again. They're the two witnesses to the Messiah, to the plan of God. You have the law and the prophets represented, brought together in Jesus Christ. Right? And they're, they're, gonna, they're brought up again here in Revelation. I will give power to my two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Half the trip. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Two humans that God has somehow orchestrated their bodies to be able to spit fire out. And to live through it. Well that can't happen. Go tell God. That's, that's the whole point of why we're in Job. God keeps telling them. Don't tell me. What's up. I am what's up. <laughs> I'm in charge. I can make whatever I want to. Remember last week he said. He said I told the oceans. You can't come any further than, you, than I told you. You're stopping right there. He's in charge. And so he's going to send these two witnesses back. Uh, and look what else they do. He says, uh, uh, if anybody tries to hurt them until their time's up. That, that's another good thing I, I think we all should rest in. You, you ain't le you're not leaving here until God's through with you. They're going to try to kill these guys. They're going to hate them because they're going to be preaching the truth. They're going to be telling them they're going to be judged if they don't turn to God and believe on Jesus. I mean, they're going to be laying it out. And then you've got these 144,000 Jewish men that are going to be raised up. They're going to be sharing the gospel. And the world's going to hate a lot of these guys. In fact, during this tribulation period, there are going to be people shaking their fist at God and cursing Him. The kings of the earth are going to plot against Him. But He says uh, they'll have fire come out of their mouths. If somebody tries to hurt them before their time. Now God's going to let them be killed eventually when their time's up. And then they're going to lay there. And they're going to, well, we'll see that. He says, if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They're not going to pull a gun. They're not going to shoot a bow and arrow. They're going to breathe fire out of their mouths and drop them dead on the street. Now, I believe if I saw that, I'd be getting on my knees and repenting. Now, and I've done all this in Revelation, but I believe it's Moses and Elijah we're talking about here. Uh, I know some people want to just put Enoch in there because he had his own personal rapture, but Enoch had a different experience than Elijah. Elijah was carried up in the chariot. Enoch 
where the Hebrew talks, his, his molecules were changed. He's a perfect picture of the church because he got raptured out of here before judgment came. And that, but Moses, uh, he had his own personal burial, right? And so he's, he, nobody got to bury Moses. God took him. And then you see in Jude where Moses, the, the devil's trying to fight Michael and trying to steal Moses' body. Well, why would he want Moses' body? Because he, he wants to do anything to stop God's plan. Why would God be preserving Moses' body? Why not just let it go back to the dust like everybody else? Why was Michael protecting his, his old dead body? Because these guys, when you read what happens here, the ministry that Elijah and Moses did is exactly what these two guys do. And also, who are the two witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Those were the two guys that showed up. They were the witnesses of saying, this is the Son of God. So they're, they're illustrated to us as the two. Don't use your brain and let it override the Scripture. Right? Your brain. That's why God's sitting, telling Job here, don't think you're all that smart. Let the Bible speak for itself and then work out of that. You and I don't come to the Bible to fit the Bible to us. We come to the Bible to fit us to, the, to it. We come to it and conform to the Bible. We don't... This is what's wrong with half the church world and, and most of the world. They want to conform the Bible to fit them. That's not how this works. We come to the Bible... To, conf to form our lives to that. It is to rebuke us, reprove us, and encourage us. That's how the Word of God is used. So then it says, uh, if anyone wants to hit, kill him, he's going to be killed this way if they try to harm him. These have power. Look what they do. They have power to shut up heaven. Who did that while he was here on earth? Elijah. So that no rain falls in the days of prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses did while he was here on earth. And to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. Who did that? Moses did that. And when they finish their testimony, the beast, and, and, the, and they are the two guys that are called the witnesses on uh, Matthew 17. Now, it says, and when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So God's done with them. He's done with their testimony and their ministry. He allows them to be killed. But this too is another way God's trying to get the world's attention. Notice how this is all mercy. I mean, if somebody's telling you God's in charge and then they breathe fire out of their mouth, I think I'd pay attention. And not only that, but notice how that's grace and mercy. God's supernaturally showing the world who He is, sometimes just His own and sometimes through the people He chooses to use. And then, look at this. And their dead bodies, after they kill them, He said their dead bodies will lie in the street in the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where also our Lord was crucified, down there in Jerusalem, then those who from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies. Everybody in the world is going to know about this. They're going to hear about these guys. Uh, Wolf Blitzer on CNN, they'll all be over there, right? Uh, the whole, all the news networks will be probably filming this, and then look what it says. Their dead bodies are going to lay in half the day, and their dead bodies will be put, they will not be put in graves. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them. They're glad they're dead. They're tired of hearing it. And that's, that's that false hope, right? They were, they were left. They, nobody could touch them for 1,200 and some days or three and a half years. Nobody could touch them. Because if they tried to touch them, bam, fire out of the mouth, dead. 
I wish the Lord let me come back and hang out with them. I want to see y'all out. Hopefully we'll be having, seeing it on a big screen on, in heaven. And then all of a sudden God pulls the, uh, the hedge back, lets them die, and the world has this false sense of hope. Oh, we finally won. But watch what happens. And so these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. If you all think my preaching's rough, get left behind and listen to these two guys. Now after these three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. I love this stuff. We win. Tell your neighbor, say, we win. We're going to win. He said, uh, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended into heaven in the cloud and their enemies saw them. Can you imagine all the news broadcasts? Their cameras shaking. They're all jumping for joy. And then all of a sudden, these guys are rising from the dead right in front of their eyes. That's mercy. That ought to wake some people up. These two guys... Rising from the dead right in front of their face? Now, chances are, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I want to tell you the truth. Chances are, we know we're close to the return of the Lord. That's why we have this hourglass here. But chances are, we're all going to leave some people we love behind. But hopefully, you've shared enough of the gospel, and you've witnessed enough to them that when they see some of this stuff, it'll cause them to... Because John goes on to say in, in Revelation here that he saw a number that no man could number coming out of the great tribulation. That's what this is. We're in tribulation now. We're just not in the great tribulation. We're not in a time of Jacob's trouble. We're not in that seven years of great tribulation. We're, but we're having tribulation. Our world's rocking and reeling. But hopefully we've shared it because he said he saw a number that no man can number coming out of the great tribulation out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. So notice because the way technology is, it's not just people in Jerusalem that will witness all this stuff. The whole world will see it on their television screens or their phones or, or iPad or whatever. So they'll be filming this. You, you know, I, I guess, <laughs> can you imagine whoever gets a sign from the news corporations to follow these two witnesses around? They'd be way back here. They're way up there talking. We're just keeping our distance. We don't want to get the fire, right? So I say all that to remind you we're in the end of time, but I also say to that that God can do whatever he wants to do. He calls Peter was walking on the water too for a little while. Wasn't just Jesus. Peter did get a few steps in. But what happened to him is he looked at his circumstances instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus. It's a word to all of us, right? It'll be awfully easy to get all, your eyes off on all this stuff going on in the world and not keep your eyes on Jesus. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's why the world is so, everything about what's going on now is so misunderstood. And many of them in our own country that don't have a clue what's going on. That's all God's business over there with Israel and Gaza in the Middle East. And I got news for you. And I, I, I'll probably get uh, hate mail over this. Gaza's going to be destroyed. It may not be finished off in this round, but according to the Scripture, Gaza's going to be destroyed, and so is Damascus, and so is Ammon. And that's why I believe 
that when you, when you see Psalm 83 playing out, and I believe we're in the beginnings of that playing out, Psalm 83, all those surrounding nations are going to get judged for the way they've treated God's people. But then you've got the ones that are, that are funding all that and supporting it from Russia to China to Iran and all that. And so in Ezekiel 38, that other battle, that, still not talking about Armageddon, we're talking about Ezekiel 38, that other battle, that, the Bible says God's going to put a hook in their jaw and bring them down. Why would he have to put a hook in their jaw? They hate Israel. I believe he's going to have to put a hook in their jaw in Ezekiel 38 because they're seeing what's going on with Psalm 83 and they don't want nothing to do with Israel at that point. They see how God, how they're devastated. And, but, but Israel's going to fall in some troubled times because Antichrist is a lot. I don't want to get, I'm losing track with Job here just a minute. I just wanted to take you over here. It's hard for me not to get in end time stuff because that's, I feel I'm equipped. But these guys are breathing fire out of their mouth. God equipped him to do that. So he, he can do whatever he wants to do. So if he's had dragons, he may have dragons uh, uh, in heaven. He may still have some up there. So nobody can mess with this creature that he's talking about. He has uh, smoke. Look at this. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Uh, I'm back in verse 20 of, of Job, sorry, 41. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning uh, rushes. So it sounds like a dragon. And then there's uh, his breath kindles coals. And a flame, uh, see, he's for coal, like me. He, <laughs> he was a coal miner. This dragon was a coal miner. His breath kindles coals. The flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells uh, in his neck. Sorrow dances for him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. So this creature looks to be like what we would call a dragon. I don't know if God called it a dragon. Uh, but it's this kind of creature that has this kind of power and force. Now, uh, let me read a little more, and then I'll take the parallel to this. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of the crashing is there beside themselves. Though uh, the sword reaches him, it don't avail. The, the spear, the dart, the javelin, he guards iron as straw, right? The arrow cannot make him flee in verse 28. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. He under, uh, he uh, his undersides are like sharp potsherds. Uh, he spreads pointed marks uh, in the mire. And that don't seem to lend itself to an alligator either. He makes the deep bull like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves the shining wake behind him. Uh, that's a pretty big creature we're talking about. One would think uh, the deep had white hair. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is a king over all the children of pride. Now, that's where the parallel comes in. Satan. Satan uh, is compared as first that which is natural and that which is spiritual. So, Satan is a burning serpent. And this Hebrew word is uh, tanin that is typically used, uh, uh, translated as dragon. Now, in the English, we've translated other things at times. But if you go back to the Latin Vulgate, which was before our Bible, and the Septuagint, which was both before our Bible, they always translated it as dragon. So we've took some liberty over time because I think, again, sometimes we've got to be careful into thinking that, well, God, he wouldn't do nothing like that. Well, God can do whatever he wants to do. Uh, <clears throat> so Satan is portrayed here. There's no question about that. 
He's portrayed as a creature that is defiant, has a heart of stone. Uh, he, is, he is certainly seen in this. In the last chapter, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. We ought to be saying that too with Job. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And that's humility. It's one thing to be wrong. But it's a beautiful thing to say I was wrong. You know what I feel like? <clears throat> Knowledge-wise, I've accumulated more knowledge. I'm older, right? I mean, I keep reading and learning. But the more I learn, the more shallow I feel about God in some ways. There's just so much to know about Him. I think the more I learn, it's pulling pride out of me. I'm thinking, I, I don't know what I thought I knew. And I think that's, <clears throat> that's where Job is at, right? You got, uh, he said, you, uh, he said I, I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you will an shall answer me. I have heard of you uh, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I bore myself and repent in dust and ashes. I, I, I say this occasionally. It's okay to question God if you're looking for answers. He's, he's big enough. But it's not okay to question him if you're trying to indict him as if he don't know what he's doing. If you want an answer, ask God. He may give it to you, he may not. But I ask God for answers. Sometimes I read stuff. I've, I've, sometimes I go away and read and just soak the word up. And sometimes I've read and didn't understand something and just really just weep, desiring understanding. I want to understand it. But it's okay to ask God to question him if you're, looking for, if you're really looking for answers. And like I said, sometimes he gives them to us. Sometimes he withholds them from us. But if you're, ask, if you're, if you're uh, questioning God as a means to indict him as if he don't know what he's doing, you better back off of that. And you better repent. Because we're getting out of bounds then. He said, I bore myself repent in dust and ashes. And so it was that the Lord had spoken these words to Job. After the Lord had spoken that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant Job. Offer up for yourselves burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. What should they have done? They were probably standing on the sidelines watching God correct Job thinking, yeah, we told you. Right? They should have been repenting too because they didn't know what they were talking about either. And they, they didn't, obviously. And God said, let my servant Job pray for you for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Just simple repentance. Don't shy away from repentance. If you have to do it every day, do it every day. 
like the blue light special at Kmart. I know there's no Kmart. <laughs> you know what the greatest thing the earth is? Repentance. That you don't have to carry that sin or that moment where you've done the wrong thing or walked off from God. Get rid of it. Throw it. Get off of you right now like Paul did that snake. Shake that thing off in the fire. Let it be consumed in the grace and the glory of God. One of the roughest guys in our town years ago, I was trying to witness to. And I, uh, he was kind of mocking a little bit, making fun. Finally, he come out for this. He's a pretty good-sized guy. Uh, and I was sharing Christ with him, or trying to. And he said, uh, finally, he, after he mocked me a little bit and act like nothing wasn't real, he said, well, anyway, you Christians are just like us. He said, you all... Ain't no different than we are. And I know the Holy Spirit will help me with this, but I said, you know what? You're right. I said, in this sense, I said, Christians do sin, just like you. I said, but there is a difference. I said, when I sin, I got somewhere to go, and you don't. I can go get that off my back, and until you give your life to Christ, you're just piling up your sin. Paul said they just store it up like... Uh, or gaze, the Greek word, they keep storing up wrath against them. And it's like that, the, that Greek word's like that last rock that hits the, the, the side of the mountain or that last snowflake that hits that last piece of snow and causes the avalanche. That's what people are doing. If they don't come to Christ, they just keep storing up wrath till that finally that last snowflake lands on the side of the mountain and here comes the avalanche. That's what that word means there where Paul's talking about that in Romans. So repent. Take, take advantage of repentance. It's there. Ask for forgiveness. Go, if we're faithful and just to uh, repent, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So repentance is a great thing. Job did it. The rest of them, I guess, thought they were in the right. But God's clearing that up, isn't he? He says, uh, Eliphaz, Timat, Bada, uh, Shuat, and Zophar, the name of that went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord, look what Job, look what God did for Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses. He prayed for his friends. Uh, indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before than all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintance before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. For he, Listen, you may have a trial in your life. You may have adversity in your life. It's okay to repent. You don't have to be a religious person and say, Well, I'm just going through this because I'm so righteous. No, you ain't. No, you ain't. You got, you're in the flesh just like all of us. I, I did some repenting when I went through my ordeal last year. Yeah, God has a way of getting our attention. Ain't none of us perfected yet, folks. Maybe a little bit of repentance might go a long way. Just, then Job, did, he didn't do nothing major, but he was crossways with God. Maybe God's wanting to tell us something. When he lets us go through adversity. Maybe he's trying to get in on us. 
Maybe he's trying to show us some things. I certainly know that's true of me. That's why I told you what I went through was God's gift to me. What he's showing me about himself and teaching me about myself. Then he says, he says uh, he got twice as much. He's doing better in his latter days. For he had 14,000 sheep, uh, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first uh, Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third uh, Kirin Hupak, Hupak, and all the land. And he was found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. Not only give him more children, gave him good-looking children. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After Job lived, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw the children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died. I, I really, Job died of an old, full days. He didn't get twice as many children. He didn't double up on that because his children, the ones he lost, they're waiting on him on the other side. But man, if we would just be humble... Some, it's, I, I want to say this because of going through the book of Job. And I was clear about a lot of this as we went through here. When I have adversity, I, I, I have three questions. Number one, am I bringing it on myself? Have I opened the door to Satan somewhere? And is that causing that adversity? Number two, is it just the devil just flat out attacking? You know. And then number three, is God sent me this way for a reason, right? I want to know which one of those three it is so I can take the right posture, right? If, if it's something I'm causing, then the right posture is just simply to repent, right? Get it right with God, right? If it's something that the devil's doing, then I can take my posture and do warfare and stand against him and rebuke him. But if it's something God's allowed to come into my life and take me down a path because he's training me, and showing me things, then I need to cooperate. Don't blame everything on the devil. Sometimes God's orchestrating our path. Do you have you read the book of Luke? I believe it is where it, when Jesus was out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Guess who took him out there? This blows some theology out of the water. The Holy Spirit drove him out. So when you're facing adversity, get you some time. It's worth getting along with God. It's worth finding you a spot away from everything and turning all your media off and talking with God. In fact, you ought to do that every day. God ought to get some undivided attention from all of us every day. Where the phone's not allowed to interrupt it, the TV's not allowed to interrupt it, the dog ain't allowed to interrupt it, and the neighbor's not allowed to interrupt it. Some undivided time with God. And find out. He, he don't want us in the dark. He wants to reveal. And so if you're going through some adversity, talk to God. And get you some information from Him. Because He knows everything. You want to know who knows how many seeds are in the watermelon? God. You know why the good news of the Holy Spirit is? And He's in our lives. He knows everything about everything. So talk to them. Talk to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, they really are know-it-alls. They know everything. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book and what it's meant to us. It prepares us for this day I think we're heading in. We're already there. All this adversity, all the troubles, things that we were going to see that we don't understand. 
It's hard to understand how they would rape a, a Jewish woman and stab her to death and then drag her through the streets of Gaza and people would come out of their houses and keep stabbing her. That's hard to understand. It's hard to understand all that's going on, but we know you're in charge. We know you can't do any wrong. We know you made the bombardier beetle. We know you made the, the uh, uh, bumblebee. We know you're going to have two prophets that can breathe fire out of their mouths. We know that. And we believe it. And we stand with you because heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will stand forever. And we celebrate that in this church and in this ministry. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Mm -hmm.